Hi, I'm Will, and thank you for downloading episode four of our podcast. In this one, we talk to Simon Askey, our Dean of Undergraduate Law. Ben Jones from our Student Advice Centre pops in for a chat. We remix another song from the University of London songbook, and we speak some Welsh. Enjoy. Welcome to the World Class Podcast. I am Will Eames and I'm joined once again in the usual spot by Joe Harris. Hi, Will. And Tim Hall. Hello, Will. Okay, it's um, sunny in London. It's nine degrees and there's zero chance of rain today, which is a minor miracle in the UK at the moment. Um, This week, we've already had Storm Kira and tomorrow Storm Dennis is coming. Last time we mentioned uh, naming of storms because there was a storm last podcast we recorded, Storm Brendan, I think it was, or Brandon. Anyway, so I found out why we named the storms because there was a bit of uncertainty. Um, So it helps people remember them, basically, and we can communicate more easily about them. So, did you say this last podcast that naming them actually like yes makes you feel less worried about them? Exactly, exactly. Because I you said I think it's Kiara, isn't it? Oh well, that's how it's spelled, but I think it's Kira. Is it? Okay, it's Kira. I think so. As in, what about Kiara that had that? Song with Justin Timberlake. Spelt the same way. I'm not familiar with that one. Aren't is you? It? Yeah. Maybe her name was Kira. I think it was Kiara. I still don't like the fact that we named storms. Yeah. So anyway, so in the 1950s, um, they developed a system where they named them because they were just using latitudinal and longitudinal numbers. So they developed the system using like the phonetic alphabet, like alpha, beta, etc., and they're using the same ones every year. So then to avoid avoid repetition, they started using human names female names only. have they have they doubled up on names i don't believe so i think right, they, okay. they get a new name every time okay. and then in the 70s they started using male and female because it names. alternates now doesn't it it does alternate yeah yeah and do you know when a storm becomes a storm is it after a certain level of wind chill or something <laughs> 39 mile an hour winds apparently okay yeah. This is fascinating this is stuff. Gold. Honestly, it's just like everyone's going to be tuning in for this one, episode five, yeah. coming so your way. Yeah. I thought it was, yeah. it was better in my head when I planned it. Anyway. <laughs> right. Um, today is Valentine's Day. Do you know why it's called Valentine's Day? No. Would you like to know? Yes. <laughs> it's named after St. Valentine, of course. Who, he was a Christian clergyman in the Roman Empire in the third century. And was he a matchmaker or something? No, he was just a, a clergyman, as far as I could tell. Just loved chocolate. Yes. So he was actually martyred by the Romans because they obviously weren't big fans of Christians. And that took place on the 14th of February in 269 AD. And so since then, we've been celebrating his murder with think, flowers and Yeah, I think it's more we're celebrating the, the love he showed to his fellow persecuted Christians. Oh. I don't know. Wikipedia let me down on this one. I couldn't find an actual really? reason. Yeah, okay. But I did find out he's the patron saint of epilepsy. I was trying to find a connection between St. Valentine and London, but he there never made it this far. No. He didn't. He, he lived in Rome and died in Rome, sadly. Last week, Joe met up with our Dean of Undergraduate Laws, Simon Askey, and here's their chat. It's really great to have the Dean of Undergraduate Laws with us today. Welcome, Simon. Thank you for being here with us today. Um, we'd like to ask you a few questions, if that's all right, for our listeners to find out a little bit more about you. And um, and you can tell our listeners a little bit more about what's happening uh, uh, in Undergraduate Laws. Sure. So I know you, so I know that you have some really interesting stories to tell, Simon. But prior to becoming the Dean of Undergraduate Laws, you did have a very varied um, and interesting career. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I can tell them some things that I want them to hear. (laughs) I'm not going to necessarily tell them things I don't want to hear. So, of course, it will be a selective uh, (laughs) introduction to myself. Um, uh, This is my third law job. I worked in two universities in the UK before this uh, teaching law, before I came to the University of London. In fact, 12 years ago, exactly today. So I've been here quite a long time. Congratulations. Uh, This is the longest time I've ever done a single job in my life. (laughs) Uh, So uh, I think the last time, the best I ever managed before that was four years um, in a single row. 
Before I uh, studied law, I didn't start studying law until my 30s. I think I was 31, but I can't exactly remember. Um, uh, I worked, uh, I studied first of all theology, and I worked as a priest in various places. Uh, most interesting, I suppose, in Papua New Guinea, uh, where I was a missionary teacher. And so that was that took a, a big part of my life. I also worked as a prison chaplain and as a hospital chaplain. Um, so I did have a, a variety of uh, different jobs in my priestly life. And I worked very briefly, only for a term in Ghana in the 1990s as well. So I knew something about the world before I came to this job. I'm sure you did. And of those kind of previous incarnations in your career, what sort of stands out to you the most? Um was it Papua New Guinea? Because I can imagine yes, yes, yes. I mean, I that think, would be really different. To- yes, completely different to anything I'd ever seen. Um, there, you know, where I lived on the edge of the jungle, almost in the jungle, really, in a house made from local wood. <laughs> um, the pigs slept beneath my house wow. so that nobody could steal them. And they were very good at keeping you warm at night, <laughs> though not that you needed to be warm because it was yeah. too warm. Um, but I think the thing that stuck out to me about Papua New Guinea was the fact that I had gone to a culture, to a place that I a- actually had no idea about at all. I, I couldn't really understand their mindset. And I, the one thing that sticks out to me most of all was often at night, I'd be really hot sleeping inside. And we had these things, they were kind of communal houses that we all sat around in to talk. And they're called house winds, which just really refers to the fact that the wind can blow through the side of the house. And so I would go out and sleep on this thing and just drop a mosquito net to sleep. And when I woke up, there'd be lots of other people sleeping around me because they hated the fact that people were on their own. So you were never, ever allowed to be on your own. And so if you went for a walk, you couldn't go for a walk on your own. This was absolutely alien to their mindset. So if you tried to sneak off on your own, you'd find that somebody else was sneaking (laughs) behind you. So you couldn't even sleep on your own. So they just felt that if you were on your own, it was somehow like, unhealthy for you? Is that- they felt that you, were, you weren't you were cared for, that you oh. had to look after people. But I think probably deep down, and I again, I didn't really understand this, that they were scared that you would be attacked in some way, maybe by an animal or by a spirit from the jungle. So oh, that kind okay. of stuff I didn't really... And that's always, always interesting because you really never, unless you come from a culture, you can observe it, but you can never really understand their kind of deep-seated beliefs. Yeah. And so what made you, you did mention that in your early 30s, you made that change to study law. What was the driver for you to go into law? Well, actually, law was something I'd been interested in before. And I had to come back from Papua New Guinea uh, when my father was ill. Um, And in fact, he died soon afterwards. And that was why I returned actually to be with my mother for a time. And then I was posted to London. And actually, I was quite bored in London, which sounds a bit mad. <laughs> um, and it was a strange place. And so while I was working in Kennington, I decided that I would study law. I'd always wanted to do it. So I thought, oh, I've got time to do my work here and study law. I didn't study as a part-time student. I studied as a full-time student. So I did two full-time things. Wow. And so you mentioned that you've been here 12 years today. So it's a big congratulations from us um, that you have worked with us for 12 years and they've been 12 great years. Um, Under your leadership, I know that the provision has changed so much um, at undergraduate laws. The introduction for two exam entries, for example, the summer school. Uh, What are you most proud of, do you think, in your time, uh, in your role? Oh, that's hard. I mean, uh, I I think probably my proudest moment and the most difficult thing that I did was to move from what was the old part, the exam by part, to a modular system. And for those young listeners, uh, uh, they won't know what that was. But when I came, the exams were in fact exactly like the exams I myself did as a law student at King's. You sat four papers together, and if you failed one, you failed all. Yeah. Um, and so, and it took me. I can remember actually in 2010 when I managed to get that through. It took me the best part of two years to get that to happen. And um, 
I was so happy that, you know, people could keep the results that they got. And I thought that that was fair. Um, and I remember clearly about three days after this happened, when I was kind of patting myself on the back for achieving this, some student wrote to me saying, oh, this is fine, but what about that? And I can remember <laughs> feeling very annoyed with that student thinking, you don't know how much blood yeah, I've sweat yeah. to achieve this, you know. But, and I suppose people often don't, but it's, it's like all these things you... you you achieve something for yourself and for the reasons that you think are right. And I wanted it because I thought it was fair. And I think that you're right in your assumptions because, I mean, it's just gone from strength to strength since you've been uh, dean at undergraduate laws. Um, what do you, what can you tell us that law students should expect from the next few years? Your team are already always bringing in innovations. Well, recently uh, we've launched an app which has been really fantastic. It's actually a, it's a Moodle-based app, but it was uh, tailored to our program, and a lot of work was done yes. by the team to make it uh, mobile ready uh, for that purpose. And it's amazing how much extra use we've had from that. And so, in a sense, I suppose what we'll see in the future is more of digital. I think we're probably likely to move away from paper-based guides. It costs a lot of money to send out paper materials. Mm. And it's much better for us if we can move to a digital platform. Um, I realise that that might not go down well in some quarters, but I think that's what we will be doing more of. We've also done a lot more kind of... Um, online lectures, um, hosting things like an induction session and piloted various things like peer-to-peer -peer review this year. Mm -hmm. And I think that we will look to enhance technology to enable us to communicate and interact with the students much more. Exactly what that will look like, I don't know. So, Simon, on our social media channels, we obviously promote the pod. And actually, overwhelmingly, we've had quite a lot of questions back from students um, asking about the LLB. Could you give us an overview, please, uh, on the LLB? Sure. Um, the LLB is a funny degree in one sense. I mean, it's peculiar uh, nowadays to England and Wales and a few other countries. And of course, the first law degree, the first LLB, was in fact awarded by the University of London. So it's a, it's a homegrown degree. And it started off as a professional qualification for lawyers, but it's not a professional qualification now. It's an academic qualification. And so what the LLB tries to do is to introduce you in the first year to the fundamental topics of law in English law. So you do criminal law, contract law, public law, and if you're a standard entry student, some legal system and method. And really what it's trying to do is introduce you to those different areas of law, which are not connected. So you've got civil law, criminal law, and public law, these three areas uh, to cover. Then in terms of compulsory subjects, we have very little. Uh, we only have tort law in the level five subjects, that's the second year, and just jurisprudence in the final year. Uh, jurisprudence is legal philosophy, and that's a peculiar London subject. Um, it started at UCL, uh, being taught there, and we continue it because the London colleges continue it. And it makes you think about what law is, what law should be, why do we do this, why do we follow the law, and so on. Now, if you want to be a lawyer in most common law jurisdictions, then just doing those subjects won't be enough. And so that's why the majority of our students do property law at level five in the second year, or land law as it used to be called. They also, um, if they want to practice in England and Wales, still have to do European Union law, despite our Brexit last week. And uh, so far as we know, and as long as the professional bodies say you've got to do it, then that's what you'll have to do. Um, and they also do... Uh, equity and trusts in the final year at level six. And so most of our students do all those subjects and they do that because those are the basics of English law. And then the options give you a chance to build on that. So for example, let's say employment law. Employment law draws on criminal law, it draws on the law of contract, it draws on the law of tort. So these other bits, uh, you need to know contract law 
to understand company law or commercial law. So we start with compulsory fundamentals and then let you choose some things in the second and third year. And do you find that uh, a lot of our students that actually complete the um, undergraduate laws degree with us, do you find that their careers um, uh, mushroom out into all different areas? Because tacitly, my knowledge is that they do. We find our alumni in the HR departments of large multinationals and so on. Um, Has that been your experience as well? Yes, of course, a lot of them start out wanting to be lawyers. And of course, they do so often not knowing much about law. And then many of them go and try their hand at being a lawyer or try to get in a law firm or maybe take a placement and find that actually it's not really what they want to do. And law really is very useful for all kinds of business, commercial uh, enterprises. So you find a lot of them do that. Um, But you find many of them do really extraordinary things. We've got entrepreneurs. We've got a very famous actress in Pakistan who's Mm. one of our LLB graduates. We've got a pop singer. Have you really? uh, Who's one of our graduates. So I think, you know, we, we... If you say to me, can you think of something that somebody hasn't done with a law degree, then I can't. So I think it's a a great background for many things, mostly because it enables you to think logically, to look at the evidence and reach a conclusion. And in truth, that's a great skill for many things. Absolutely. And the attention to detail that's required in the role. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that in your role, it's quite you have to travel quite regularly, and um, that leads you to far flung corners of the world. Um, and you visit our students and support colleagues in our teaching centres around the world. What are the highlights for you when you travel? Because I know it sounds glamorous travel, but travel is really hard when you have to do it as much as you do. Yes, I travel about a third of the year, and sometimes a little bit more. Um, and of course. Most of our students are, in fact, in the uh, around the Indian subcontinent. Our biggest market is Pakistan, or in the far east, as we would say, uh, where our second biggest market is Malaysia. We've still got a lot of students in Hong Kong, some in Singapore, and then coming back, of course, towards Bangladesh. Um, another big market for us in Sri Lanka, a little bit further south of there. So those are the places I tend to visit most often. Though Of course, I still visit the other places too, like Trinidad and Jamaica. Um, of course, once you've done this for 12 years, um, some places become very familiar to you. Um, I can... Uh, name all the stops on the monorail in Kuala Lumpur, <laughs> but I couldn't name all the stops on the Northern Line yeah. in London. So <laughs> so you do become very familiar with things. Um, and I still, I mean, I still really do like Kuala Lumpur. It's mm. got a great buzz to it. It's a bit uh, chaotic, mm. not as chaotic as Bangkok, uh, not as calm and serene as Singapore, but it's got that kind of buzz. And so I think I, you know, like going there. I get used to the food. Some of it's very familiar. Um, But I guess the highlight always is meeting the students, really. Whenever I'm meant to be doing a visit, following a schedule, I always overrun talking to the students. Um, You know, I'm meant to look at the library holdings, and I do, uh, but in the quickest way possible. And I'm not really very interested in looking around a library at a few books, but I'm always interested to meet the students and to hear their views about things because um, listening to young people and talking to young people, I suppose, is what keeps you young. It, it, It... it keeps you on your feet and you're never really sure what they're going to say. Whereas, you know, being having a tour of a building, you can make innocuous comments about the colour of the wallpaper <laughs> or what you think about the classroom layout. But really, it's not that fascinating. Yeah. Uh, whereas meeting the students, there's always somebody to keep you on your feet. Yeah. I mean, I have to say I've had the privilege of uh, travelling with you sometimes and um, I can, you know, say wholeheartedly that the students are so important to you you spend all so much extra time just talking to the students after the event or the ceremony is over um and I know the students get a lot out of that so I think you know on behalf of the students I want to thank you for the what you do there because I I do think you going around the world and meeting them where they're studying is is really really important um I know when you go as well you're often asked to uh MC to facilitate or present events on behalf of the University of London um 
Does it differ from country to country when you have to do those different ceremonial roles? It does. And um, if you took notice of kind of general wisdom, I mean, often people will tell you, if you're crossing culture, never attempt to make jokes. Well, I always make jokes. Um <laughs> Wherever I am, uh, I never stop making jokes about things. Um, yes, I tune them into the particular culture and I'm mindful of what may or may not be appropriate. But I think you've got to, whatever you're doing, engage with people at a human level. Nobody's interested in meeting somebody who's a role or very distant from them. Everyone wants to meet somebody who they think uh, they can connect with. And I think that's the important thing. So most of the time I try to find something uh, topical, local, whether that's making some aside about their cricket team or yeah. making some jibe about their driving yeah. or you know, their poor public transport or whatever, something that I know that they will understand uh, to connect with them. Because um, of course, you can make formal speeches and there are things sometimes that you've got to make clear and some issues that you've got to cover. But ultimately, they want to be able to remember you as a human being, not mm. as a, a role. And you've travelled, uh, you've been to Pakistan this year so far, haven't you? Um, this year so far, I haven't been to Pakistan. Oh. This 2020, I've only been to Bangladesh, Malaysia, Singapore and Hong Kong. I'm going to Pakistan on oh. Thursday of this week. Oh, so are you really? That's my next okay. Stop, yes. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, Simon, it's been such a pleasure um, having you on the podcast. I want to just ask you one last question before you go. If you could give our students any advice about their studies and beyond, <laughs> what would that be? Well, that's very difficult. Um, it's really hard to give people advice because mostly they don't take any notice of what you say. And so they you, might take notice <laughs> of the Dean of Undergraduate Laws, I'd have to say. Uh, but um, I think you've got to find something that you enjoy about your studies and work out how to pursue that. Ultimately, in your life, you have got to become happy with yourself. If other people don't like you, well, that's tough. Uh, but you do need mm. to learn to like and love yourself and value what's good about yourself and understand your own strengths and your own weaknesses. And really then in life, you've got to get on with enjoying those things. And how you do that in law doesn't really matter. Um, it, you know, one could say, oh, study hard, do this, do that. But actually, I think, you know, life is about getting on with yourself and working out what you're good at and getting on with that. Words to live by. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks very much, Simon. Welcome. Right, it's songbook time. So if you're not familiar with this, we spoke about this in the very first episode. Um, Tim discovered there was a University of London songbook, which was put together in the 1920s. Uh, and then one of our listeners, Vichar, tracked down a copy, which we procured. There's a preface in the book um, written by the principal at the time. Um, actually, Tim, could you read that out for me? Sure. Your voice is more dramatic. Um, let's see. How much of it do you want me to read? Just the first couple of sentences. Okay. Surely it is appropriate that in this year of community singing, when some 100,000 subjects of the King sang together before him at Wembley, a songbook should be issued for the University of London. Our university perhaps depends more than others on getting to know itself by song. That's perfect. Thank you, Tim. That was really well read. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, that, that got us thinking, what was the, the reference to Wembley? So um, if you don't know, Wembley is um, England's national stadium used for football and um, uh, concerts. Um, and there was, as there is every year, an FA Cup final, which took place at Wembley um, in 1927, the, the very year that the book came out. So we theorised that's what the reference was to. Um, have you guys ever been to Wembley? Yes, many times. What have you seen there? So I went um, in the London Olympics. I watched a Olympic football match. Cool. Because um, that was the only Olympic tickets I could get. I tried to get tickets to the stadium to watch, you know, the 100 metres and all that. Yeah. That was like gold dust. You couldn't get that. But I did get um, tickets to go and see the uh, semi final. So I went there, which is really, really good. Um, I've been to Wembley to see um, matches, um, more midweek um, international matches. 
um, when they've been friendlies because that's when you can get tickets. Um, and I've also been there to see concerts, of course, because they do concerts at Wembley. I've never been to see Arsenal in an FA Cup final. And that is sad because we do <laughs> actually hold the record for most FA Cups ever in a, as a Premier League team. Do you think you'll ever get back? Yeah, of course we will. Probably this year. I was really lucky because I, I've been a few times, but the, arguably went to the biggest football match you can watch, which is the championship final. Um, I saw Fulham uh, play Aston Villa there and then get promoted to the Premier League, which is an amazing experience. Um, everyone was just losing their minds. and It was just phenomenal. I, th I think it's the most expensive football match in the as far as like uh the the money that's yeah so it's the biggest um, prize the in biggest football stakes, yeah that's winning right, the championship yeah. playoff because you get the money to go up to the premier league that's right yeah um i've actually been to wembley with tim we, oh yeah we, we went to see um england v belarus, belarus i think right. it was a euro qualifier um, qualifier or friendly oh no, 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 it, was, no yeah, it would have been a qualifier so wasn't yeah. it one of david beckham's last it matches it was it was david yeah. beckham's last match oh, yeah. okay yeah um yeah i'm slightly concerned this is turning into a football podcast um, yeah, I've been, I went to see, um, I actually went to see Jay-Z at Wembley. Did you? Yeah. That's not as cool as it sounds because he was supporting Coldplay. <laughs> okay. <You know. laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, Wembley actually opened in 1923, uh, but since been renovated. Um, it's actually hosting the European Championship final this year. It is, yeah. That should be good. Hopefully get tickets. Um, anyway, so the FA Cup. In 1927, which is, I think, where we started this section. That's right. Um, I found this this reference. This is from Wikipedia. It said, um, a community concert began inside the stadium at 1.50, led by the bands of the Grenadier and the Irish Guards. Songs included Abide With Me. Uh, this was the first time it had been performed at an FA Cup final, but it became a tradition to sing before every final. Loud cheers were heard 40 minutes later during the concert to celebrate the arrival of King George V. As the players entered the field, the King shook hands with them, as well as the officials, and the match was the first cup final to be broadcast on the radio by the BBC. So that, the 100,000 people singing in front of the King. Is what the book is, was referencing. Was what it was referencing. Oh, okay. So um, the capacity, I think actually there was something like 90-something thousand, 91,000 people were there that day, oh and 300,000 applied for tickets. Do you know who was playing in the final that year, in the FA Cup final. Any ideas? It's going to be something like Doncaster and Leeds or something like that. It's not going to be a, a name, a team that we know now. No, it's actually Arsenal. Oh, Arsenal Joe, were, <laughs> handed you a card. Arsenal were playing Cardiff City. Were they really? Yeah. Do you Who know won? What? Cardiff. Oh. No, no. Cardiff won 1-0. That's why I've blocked it out. <laughs> <laughs> Cardiff won 1-0. And um, the... The only goals, it was scored in the second half and it apparently was a really weak shot towards the keeper who picked it up. But then uh, the ball slipped through his arm and went into the goal. And then he later blamed it on the fact that he was wearing a new jersey and it was slippery. Probably, yeah. Yeah, that's probably yeah. what happens, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so he um, he threw away his runners-up middle. He, was, he didn't want to have it because right. of the mistake because he cost yeah. Arsenal the game. And he was actually a Welshman um, and Cardiff obviously being a Welsh city, he was accused of throwing the game. Right. He probably did, didn't he? I don't want to say, but, you know, <laughs> they are very patriotic down there and they do love their, uh, you know. <laughs> so last time we said that we were going to take a different song from the book each time and remix it in an attempt to ultimately produce a University of London lo-fi study playlist. Um I think you added lo-fi. Okay. I think it was just going to be a... Well, you can't study to progressive house, can you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> if you study to progressive house, please let us know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, continuing on with the Welsh theme, I've taken this song from page four of the book, and it is a traditional Welsh song called All Through the Night. Um, and the lyrics in the book appear in Welsh with an English translation. Um, and this is how the song should sound. And what have you done with it? 
I'll get to that. To give you an idea of how the lyrics sound, Amy, our colleague from the student experience team, who is indeed from Wales and speaks Welsh, is going to read them for us. Holl am rantar ser ddiweddant ar hyd y nos, dyma'r ffordd i ffrog o goniant ar hyd y nos. Golau arall yw tywyllwch i arddangos gwir brydferddwch, teilu'r nefoedd mewn tawelwch ar hyd y nos. That is brilliant. That's very cool. Yeah, it's a lovely language. So stay there, Amy. So um, that translates to, well, according to the book, it translates to to star. Actually, can you translate it? Can you? (laughs) No, I don't think I can. So it's it's, quite old. Yeah, so it's star on stars, uncertain gleaming all through the night, tells of worlds beyond our dreaming all through the night. Darkness is but light more tender when the silent shadows render to the starry host's new splendour all through the night. So, Amy, without wanting to patronise any of our listeners um, yeah. who might not be familiar with um, the makeup of the UK, okay. what is Wales? What is Wales? Wow, yeah. That's a big question. <laughs> what Wales, is Wales is a country in the United Kingdom. And the other countries that make up the UK are? England. Yep. Scotland. Yep. And Northern Ireland. Yeah. Um, for now. For now. Yeah. Um, not to be confused with the British Isles, which also covers Ireland, the Isle of Man, the Channel Islands, and some 6,000 other smaller islands. So Wales has a population of just over 3 million people. And what you just heard there is the official, it is the official language of Wales, isn't it? Was it? Yeah. English and Welsh? I think Welsh? English and Welsh. And do you learn it in school? Yeah. So you learn it up until GCSE. So when you're 16, and then it's optional A-level. So you have a GCSE in yeah, Welsh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. A star, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> so Welsh evolved from the Celtic language, which was spoken in Celtic or ancient Britain. And that was the period um, around 3,000 years ago in the Iron Age, right up until the Romans um, arrived in Britain about 2,000 years ago. Um, and then, then the country was invaded by the Anglo-Saxons and the culture and language of the Britons began to fragment um, so a lot of the Celt territory was taken over and by the Anglo-Saxons and the, the Britons were sort of pushed out to the outer extremities of um, the UK. Some of them even went to France um, and formed Brittany, which is part of Northern France. Uh, they went to the Channel Islands and they got pushed up to Scotland, out to Cornwall and Wales. Did you know that Welsh is also spoken in another country? Yes, I did. Did you? Yeah. <laughs> You've spoiled my surprise. Or shall I just no, say, what? No, 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 go. Yeah, Patagonia in Argentina. It is. Yeah. That's, that always blows my mind. It's amazing, isn't it? Loads of people from where I'm from go there on like a little pilgrimage. Oh, really? Yeah, it's really popular for Welsh people to like go there and speak the language. So, yeah. do you know what the history behind it is? Um, not off the top of my head. I what? wish I did. So, the way I understand it, I think the. Um, in the 19th and 20th century, the um, Argentine government were encouraging emigration from Europe to populate the, the, the country outside of Buenos Aires. So um, around the middle of the 19th century, people from, from Wales went over. Oh, yeah. Wow. So there were 34 different settlements of immigrants um, and a area in Patagonia um, was set up by 44 Welsh people. Um, and that became, do you know what the... The area is called. I can't. I, I'll show it to no. you. You can say it. Yeah, Uladva. Okay. They also had their own national anthem, which okay. was um, it had the same tune as the the Welsh national anthem, but they changed the lyrics. Would you mind having a go at reading these? Okay. Anadli gwir a gown an olad, or gerhaith gormesiaith a brad. That's brilliant. Well done. Oh my God. Completely put you on the spot. I haven't good. seen those words before. So it translates to Patagonia is dear to me, the new land of the noble Welsh people. True freedom we breathe in our new country, far from the reach of oppression and betrayal. Oh, wow. That's so that, strong. Yeah, they're obviously quite keen to get away from the rest of the UK. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much, Amy. Thank you. Um, and without further ado, here's the lo-fi remix of All Through the Night.
also like to welcome Ben Jones, who is the Deputy Head of the Student Advice Centre with us this morning. Welcome, Ben. Hello, Joe. Um, ben, um, I think it'd be really interesting if our listeners find out a little bit more about um, what your team does and maybe a little bit of an overview of your role. Um, we refer to the Student Advice Centre as the SAC, um, so we might use that terminology throughout this interview. But um, yeah, Ben, if you could just uh, let us know um, a little bit more about you and the team's uh, position within the university. Of course. Um, we see ourselves as the first line of response in terms of student inquiries, whether that's in writing or via telephone calls. Um, we do try and answer most inquiries in the first instance if we can, but we do need to liaise with various teams around the university for more specialist knowledge and also to make sure that the student receives a, a full and comprehensive answer to their inquiry rather than giving them half an answer. Yeah, um, I know that's really important for the students because normally when they're ringing you or uh, sending you um, a message that sometimes tend to be quite worried because uh, about their um, exams, for example, I think we get a lot of inquiries around exam time, don't we? Yes. At the moment, we're extremely busy with exam related inquiries as we're just coming to the end of the deadlines for actually entering for the exams. What we do normally try and tell students, whether it's in regards to an examination entry or registration deadline, is that as long as you let us know what your problem is and get that logged before the deadline, we're normally able to, to perhaps give a little extension to the deadline or to make sure that you do get entered in the end. Oh, that's brilliant. So I know that you do receive inquiries throughout the year and there are peaks and troughs within the student life cycle exams being one of them, like you said, we get a lot of inquiries um, now about those but so can you tell us on average how many um inquiries that you you and the team have to deal with i think a good way to look at it is um what we normally say is an individual may deal with up to about 60 inquiries a day and we have about 10 staff in the student advice center so if you look at it like that we're dealing with sort of at least three thousand inquiries a week um, and what used to be the quiet times has now changed due to the fact that we've had more courses and quite a variety of courses launch and they all have very different dates. So when we used to have a very quiet summer, that doesn't quite exist anymore. So what we're finding is that we're actually busier throughout the whole of the year. But hopefully this does alleviate some of the problems in what were the busier times. And do you and the team recommend students get in touch with you um, a certain way to get their inquiry resolved it can be to do with the nature of the inquiry. Some inquiries are best dealt with directly over the telephone, but in many instances, we can't actually assist as we do need to have the request from the student in writing, in which case we normally suggest using the um, inquiry system. Okay, and they can get to that via their portal, can't they, in the Ask a Question tab? Indeed, you can access it through that and also through the main website at the bottom, or if you just type contact us into the search bar, it will take you to the page where you can log an inquiry. A good other point to make is that a lot of the information is actually contained on the website and can be found through using the search function. What can our students expect once they've asked their questions? Say so they go through the inquiry system, which I, I do think is obviously the best way because then they can lay out their inquiry um, and you can actually review from their student records what they've they've asked and, and go back through their records. What can they expect once they've sent that uh, their question in via the um, inquiry system? What they can expect is that it will be resolved for them. It may take us a little bit of time to get to the bottom of whatever the problem may be or to speak to the correct department who may also be suffering from high workloads, but that in the end, their inquiry will be resolved and resolved fully. Um, and are there different approaches that your team must take if a student has a question that perhaps is fee-related or if it's a technical uh, issue with the platform, for example, or something to do with their registration, should they do anything different? The best thing to do is to provide us with a full overview of the situation and as much evidence as possible. For example, when we're dealing with technical inquiries, it's very helpful for the technical team to have screenshots of the issue that the student's experiencing. That way, we don't need to go back to the student and we can answer them much quicker. Okay. And you did mention that there are obviously, um, I think uh, there are frequently asked questions on the website. Is that right, Ben? And there are other resources that the students can use? There is a knowledge base on the website and hopefully there will be more frequently answered questions posted soon. Okay, that's brilliant. Finally, Ben, can you tell us a little bit about what you enjoy about your role? I can. I enjoy helping students and allowing people to access education no matter where around the globe they're located. Uh, there's a real sense of fulfilment in being able to help someone with an issue that they've encountered and to make sure that they have the fullest educational experience possible.
I think that's right. And I think that the students should realise that everybody that does work in the Student Advice Centre have a very similar mindset to you because I know because I, I worked in the Student Advice Centre, we all are there to help. Um, it just sometimes is very difficult when there is um, like a, quite a, an inquiry that might require multiple teams to actually resolve the issue. So that's sometimes where the delays are. Yes, indeed. The level of complexity of the inquiry sometimes means that we can't always answer them in the first instance. What I will say is that we will always try and make sure that it goes to someone who can answer it as quickly and as fully as possible. And we do appreciate the patience that students show with us. Oh, that's great. Ben, thanks so much for coming in to speak to us today. I'm sure our listeners will get a really good overview about what life is like for you and the rest of the team in the Student Advice Centre and how your focus is very much on supporting our students day in, day out. Thank you so much, Ben. Oh, it's my pleasure, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Ben. Right. It's quiz time. Can you check your buzzers, please? Joe. Not so hard. No, just, just press it. Yeah, but I have to press it hard when I know that I want to get the question just quick. That was mine. Thank you. Okay. You're, you're not going to like this one. Today's quiz. Is it more biased towards me this time rather than uh, somebody that literally sat in their bedroom and read <laughs> the actual books that you were talking about? Right. Today's quiz is a history quiz. Oh. Okay. Okay. Question one. In which century was London established and by whom? Oh my God, that's going to be hard, but wasn't it called Londinium? It was, Joe. And I'm going to hazard a guess at... I think we'll go around the 1066 mark. Oh, it's it's good theory, but it's not quite right. Right. To, I mean, there, there there have been settlements on where London sits before the Romans settled. Londinium. But I would say if you're talking about the foundation of Londinium by the Romans, then that's, or what they called it, I would say that's like second century. No, you're very close. It was uh, the first century. Oh. It was um, believed to be about 43 AD when the Romans invaded Britain. Okay. Joe, you, you did actually, I was going to ask what it was known as. So you did get that. So, so that's a bonus point. I'll give you, oh. You'll have a bonus point. Come on now. So <laughs> in fact, there, there was nothing in London before the Romans. There weren't, there were maybe tiny little farmsteads. Yeah. Mm. Um, but the Romans picked London because the River Thames, it was deep enough to get ships through, but also not so wide that they couldn't build bridges over it. So there you go. Perfect okay. place. Fingers on the buzzers. Question two. Which Essex town did London replace as the capital of Roman Britain in the second century? Colchester. You're right. Yay! Oh, <laughs> so Colchester. Well, I don't think I've ever been to Essex. What? <laughs> You've never been to Essex? I can't think of why I would have. And by the time London became the capital, it had 60,000 inhabitants, which Amazing. is a lot less than it does today. Okay. Eight million. Around. Eight million, yeah. Right, apologies. This is another question about Romans. Right. Also, around this time, the Romans built what is now known as the London Wall, which was a defensive wall which ran around the city. Parts of it still remain today. The Romans included six gates in the wall to coincide with their network of roads. Can you name two of the six original gates? Like there's one near Tower Bridge, like, or at least, uh, sorry, Tower. Bishop's yeah. Gate. Oh. Got one. Okay. Name one more for the point. Oh, a half gate. a point now, come on. Bishop's um, Gate. Bishop's yeah. Gate. Um, my mind's gone blank and it's the pressure. Okay, I'll give you half a point. Okay, so the six original gates, Ludgate, Newgate, oh, Ludgate Cripplegate, Bishopsgate, Allgate, and Oldgate, and Aldersgate. I don't know I knew Aldersgate, Old and I didn't Gate. know Cripplegate either. Right, only one of those I know is Oldgate. Question four, fingers and buzzers. Okay. I've got to, got to get something. Which catastrophic event in London in the 17th century is thought to have helped? Oh, no, ah, ah, ah. I've got to read the question. You know the oh, rules. Oh, yeah. You okay, know the rules. okay. We're trying to educate our listeners. Yeah, okay. <laughs> which catastrophic event in London in the 17th century is thought to have helped put an end to the Great Plague, which itself 
is estimated to have killed around 100,000 people. Oh, I think that was equal. Okay, go Say on. It together. Have it. The Great Fire of London. London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You can Do have... you know where it started? Baker Street. No, it's, that's, it's not, not, that's not true. No, it's not, it's not Baker Street. It's in a baker's. It was in a bakery, It was actually in, it was actually by the river that it started. It was Pudding Lane. And exactly. Pudding. Yeah, it Pudding was a bakery, Lane. not yeah. Baker Street. I'm going to yeah. take your point Pudding away. Pudding Lane, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the, the Great Fire destroyed about 60% of the city. And killed all the rats. Killed all the rats. So the, the Great Plague was an epidemic of the bubonic plague, which spread through the bite of infective rat fleas. And you know where it came in to the UK? No. Weymouth Harbour. Did it? Of course it did. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we should do a podcast about Dorset rather, <laughs> rather than London. Can I remind you the name of the education establishment well, you, you work for? You set right. up, Will. Right. Last question. What are the scores? I mean, I'm winning by uh, a I mean, it's important to say as well, the Great Fire of London, one of the things that, you know, without being too like funny about it, the Great Fire of London, uh, that was one of the reasons why a lot of this is made of Portland Stone as well, because they had the opportunity to rebuild. And that was when all of the big quarrying work happened on Portland. And a lot of it was used to to rebuild. Absolutely right. Because everything was obviously wood yeah. up to that yeah. point. Yeah. Thank you. Right. Last question. Fingers on the buzzers. What is Big Ben? It's the bell contained within the building that people often refer to as Big Ben. That's the perfect answer. Well done, Tim. Yes, it is indeed the bell. Do you know, for a bonus point, what the actual tower is called? Big Bill. <laughs> Big Bill. <laughs> <laughs> no, it is called the Elizabeth Tower. And it was named that in 2012 to mark the Diamond Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. So what was it so called So they only that? named it in 2012? Well, before that, it was just known as the Clock Tower. Oh, okay. So construction was completed in 1859. Why might tourists be disappointed if they visited Big Ben at the moment? It's covered in scaffolding. That that, that wasn't a quiz question, but thank you too. <laughs> it doesn't work. No, it's not. You're right. It, it doesn't work and it's covered in scaffolding. Yeah. You can see the face. You can see one of the four but, faces. Yeah. Mm. Um, but it's covered in scaffolding because they're renovating it and it was silenced in August 2017 for four years. Did you know there is a little Ben? Where? It's in Victoria, near Victoria Station. Do you see it? I haven't seen it. I saw it on Wikipedia when oh. I was putting the quiz together. Okay. <laughs> I'm not, I didn't know. We need to get Tim Wade back. He'd yeah. know yeah. about that. That was built in 1892. Okay. Okay. So I think, what were the scores? Does anyone uh, I think care? I, I mean, think it's, it was a draw. It's, it's, it was not a draw. There's no way that was a draw. We need to go back over because it's I will listen to clearly. It. Yeah, I feel. I think it was a close one. If I take Tim's point away from <laughs> so Baker Street. <laughs> Baker Street. <laughs> yeah. Okay, that brings us to the end of another episode. We now have listeners in 57 different countries, oh, which is amazing, fantastic. So. Do keep listening and let other people know about the podcast. Um, if you do want to get in touch with us, um, you can reach us through Twitter at London U. On Instagram, we are underscore London U. And on Facebook, we are London U. And thanks for the feedback that we've received so far on learn.london.ac.uk. Now, this is a resource that's been sort of soft launched that you can access through your uh, student portal. It's a soft launch, but it contains a lot of content uh, that we hope is going to be useful for you. So things like study skills, there's lots of stuff on employability in there, which you would have heard about in previous podcasts from Laura Brammer. Um, and it will be, we'll be building on that content. And it's also a space for you to, uh, to build communities with other students that might not be doing your course. So um, yeah, get, get on board and tell us what you think of it. And there's also a discussion forum there for the podcast itself. Absolutely, so if you do yeah. want to contact us through there, you're very welcome to. Talk about the things we got wrong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apologies to any Welsh listeners. <laughs> yeah. Also launching, Will, I think if I can just let everyone know, um, is we have actually invested in a new um, app for wellbeing and um, positive mental health. And this is a um, an app that is a peer support um, app so other students will be online and 
they will be able to, um, you will be able to um, chat to other students who maybe are feeling a bit stressed or maybe needing a bit of a boost because they're not, they're feeling a bit low or a bit worried about their studies or anything that happens um, throughout anyone's life that might make them feel like they need to uh, reach out and speak to somebody. Um, that um, app is now available and you can get more information on the student portal about that. Brilliant. Um, we've also had some interest from listeners to appear on the podcast. So next episode, we'll be featuring one of you. And also we'd like to uh, invite alumni to speak as well at this podcast. So that'll be coming up. Um, we just want to give a real rounded experience of the University of London and what it's like to be a student and an alum of the university. So um, hopefully if you've got any ideas as well about the podcast or what you'd like us to feature and what you'd like us to cover, we're really open to your views. We'd love to uh, do something that feels right for you uh, and not just me getting um, over competitive on a quiz. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. Happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Happy Day. Happy Valentine's Day. Bye, everyone.